Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings will come from The Luck of Roaring Camp and Other Tales, written by Bret Hart and published in 1868. Roaring Camp is a frontier settlement in California. The story is about the birth of a baby boy in a prospecting camp in the 19th century. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's sleep. I want to help people doze off so that they can have a productive day and achieve whatever it is they need to set out and do. I read a different story every episode to help you get a good night's rest. It is designed to play in the background as you slowly fall asleep. Every episode tells a different story, and you're welcome to listen to whichever one works for you. Before you doze off, and if you would be so kind, please take a quick moment to leave a review and rating in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. And if you haven't already, please remember to subscribe. You would be surprised at how helpful leaving reviews, ratings and subscribing can be. It helps me reach more people who need a good night's rest. I'd love to hear where you're listening from in the world, so please feel free to say hello at boreyoutosleep.com. If you're a regular listener and would like to support the show, you can also do that at the website. It helps keep the show on air so that people everywhere can get a good night's rest. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Luck of Roaring Camp and Other Tales There was commotion in Roaring Camp. It could not have been a fight, for in 1850 that was not novel enough to have called together the entire settlement. The ditches and claims were not only deserted, but Tuttle's grocery had contributed its gamblers who, it will be remembered, calmly continued their game the day that French Pete and Kanaka Joe shot each other to death over the bar in the front room. The whole camp was collected before a rude cabin on the outer edge of the clearing. Conversation was carried on in a low tone, but the name of a woman was frequently repeated. It was a name familiar enough in the camp. Cherokee Sal. Perhaps the less said of her, the better. She was a coarse and, it is to be feared, a very sinful woman. But at the time, she was the only woman in Roaring Camp. 
and was just then lying in sore extremity when she most needed the ministration of her own gender. Dissolute, abandoned and irreclaimable, she was not yet suffering a martyrdom hard enough to bear her, even when veiled by sympathising womanhood, but now terrible in her loneliness. The primal curse had come to her in that original isolation, which must have made the punishment of the first transgression so dreadful. It was, perhaps, part of the expiation of her sin that at a moment when she had most lacked her gender's intuitive tenderness and care, she met only the half-contemptuous faces of her masculine associates. Yet a few of the spectators were, I think, touched by her sufferings. Sandy Tipton thought it was rough on Sal, and in the contemplation of her condition, for a moment rose superior to the fact that he had an ace and two bowers in his sleeve. It will be seen also that the situation was novel. Deaths were by no means uncommon in Roaring Camp, but a birth was a new thing. People had been dismissed the camp effectively, finally, and with no possibility of return. But this was the first time that anybody had been introduced, hence the excitement. Here you go, Stumpy, said a prominent citizen known as Kentuck, addressing one of the loungers. Go in there and see what you can do. You've had the experience in them things. Perhaps there was a fitness in the selection. Stumpy, in other climes, had been the putative head of two families. In fact, it was owing to some legal informality in these proceedings that Roaring Camp, a city of refuge, was indebted to his company. The crowd approved the choice, and Stumpy was wise enough to bow to the majority. The door closed on the extempore surgeon and midwife, and Roaring Camp sat down outside, smoked its pipe, and awaited the issue. The assemblance numbered about a hundred men, One or two of these were actual fugitives from justice. Some were criminal and all were reckless. Physically, they exhibited no indication of their past lives and character. The greatest scamp had a Raphael face with a profusion of blonde hair. Oakhurst, a gambler, had the melancholy air and intellectual abstraction of a hamlet. The coolest and most courageous man was scarcely over five feet in height, 
with a soft voice and an embarrassed, timid manner. The term roughs applied to them was a distinction rather than a definition. Perhaps in the minor details of fingers, toes, ears, etc., the camp may have been deficient, but these slight omissions did not detract from their aggregate force. The strongest man had but three fingers on his right hand. The best shot had but one eye. Such was the physical aspect of the men that were dispersed around the cabin. The camp lay in a triangular valley between two holes and a river. The only outlet was a steep trail over the summit of a hill that faced the cabin, now illuminated by the rising moon. The suffering woman might have seen it from the rude bunk whereon she lay, seen it winding like a silver thread until it was lost in the stars above. The fire of withered pipes bows added sociability to the gathering. By degrees the natural levity of roaring camp returned. Bets were freely offered and taken regarding the result. Three to five that Sal would get through with it. Even that child would survive. Side bets as to the gender and complexion of the coming stranger. In the midst of an excited discussion, an exclamation came from those nearest the door, and the camp stopped to listen. Above the swaying and moaning of the pines, the swift rush of the river, and the crackling of the fire, rose a sharp, querulous cry, a cry unlike anything heard before in the camp. The pines stopped moaning, the river ceased to rush, and the fire to crackle. It seemed as if nature had stopped to listen too. The camp rose to its feet as one man, It was proposed to explode a barrel of gunpowder, but in consideration of the situation of the mother, better counsels prevailed and only a few revolvers were discharged. For whether owing to the rude surgery of the camp or some other reason, Cherokee Sal was sinking fast. Within an hour she had climbed, as it were, that rugged road that led to the stars, and so passed out of roaring camp at sin and shame forever. I do not think that the announcement disturbed them much, except in speculation as to the fate of the child. Can he live now? was asked of Stumpy. The answer was doubtful, the only other being of Cherokee Sal's gender and maternal condition in the settlement was an ass. 
There was some conjecture as to fitness, but the experiment was tried. It was less problematical than the ancient treatment of Romulus and Remus, and apparently as successful. When these details were completed, which exhausted another hour, the door was opened and the anxious crowd of men, who had already formed themselves into a queue, entered in single file, beside the low bunk or shelf on which the figure of the mother was starkly outlined below the blankets, stood a pine table. On this a candle box was placed, and within it, swathed in staring red flannel, lay the last arrival at Roaring Camp. Beside the candle box was placed a hat, Its use was soon indicated. Gentlemen, said Stumpy, with a singular mixture of authority and ex officio complacency, gentlemen will please pass in at the front door, round the table, and out at the back door. Them as wishes to contribute anything toward the orphan will find a hat handy. The first man entered with his hat on. He uncovered, however, as he looked about him, and so unconsciously set an example to the next. In such communities, good and bad actions are catching. As the procession filed in comments were audible, Criticisms addressed perhaps rather to Stumpy in the character of showman. Is that him, mighty small specimen? Hasn't got more the colour. Ain't bigger nor a derringer. The contributions were as characteristic. A silver tobacco box, a double loon, a navy revolver, silver-mounted, a gold specimen, a very beautifully embroidered lady's handkerchief from Oakhurst the Gambler, a diamond breast pin, a diamond ring suggested by the pin with the remark from the giver that he saw the pin and went to diamonds better, a slung shot, a Bible, Contributor was not detected. A golden spur. A silver teaspoon. The initials, I regret to say, were not the givers. A pair of surgeon's shears. A lancet. A Bank of England note for L5 and about $200 in loose gold and silver coins. During these proceedings... Stumpy maintained a silence as impassive as the dead on his left, a gravity as inscrutable as that of the newly born on his right. Only one incident occurred to break the monotony of the curious procession. As Kentuck bent over the candle box half curiously, 
The child turned and, in a spasm of pain, caught at his groping finger and held it fast for a moment. Kentuck looked foolish and embarrassed. Something like a blush tried to assert itself in his weather-beaten cheek. The dirty little cuss, he said, as he extricated his finger with perhaps more tenderness and care than he might have been deemed capable of showing. He held that finger a little apart from its fellows as he went out, and examined it curiously. The examination provoked the same original remark in regard to the child. In fact, he seemed to enjoy repeating it. He wrestled with my finger, he remarked to Tipton, holding up the member, the dirty little cuss. It was four o'clock before the camp sought repose. A light burnt in the cabin where the watchers sat, for Stumpy did not go to bed that night. Nor did Kentuck. He drank quite freely, and related with great gusto his experience, invariably ending with his characteristic condemnation of the newcomer. It seemed to relieve him of any unjust implication of sentiment, and Kentuck had the weaknesses of the nobler gender. When everybody else had gone to bed, he walked down to the river and whistled reflectingly. Then he walked up the gulch past the cabin still whistling with demonstrative unconcern. At a large redwood tree, he paused and retracted his steps and again passed the cabin. Halfway down to the river's bank, he again paused and then returned and knocked at the door. It was opened by Stumpy. How goes it? said Kentuck, looking past Stumpy toward the candle box. All serene, replied Stumpy. Anything up? Nothing. There was a pause, an embarrassing one, Stumpy still holding the door. Then Kentuck had recourse to his finger, which he held up to Stumpy, wrestled with it, the dirty little cuss, he said, and retired. The next day, Cherokee Sal had such rude sepulture as Roaring Camp afforded. After her body had been committed to the hillside, there was a formal meeting of the camp to discuss what should be done with her infant. A resolution to adopt it was unanimous and enthusiastic, but an animated discussion in regard to the manner and feasibility of providing for its wants at once sprang up. 
It was remarkable that the argument partook of none of those fierce personalities with which discussions were usually conducted at Roaring Camp. Tipton proposed that they should send the child to Red Dog, a distance of 40 miles where female attention could be procured but the unlucky suggestion met with fierce and unanimous opposition. It was evident that no plan which entailed parting from their new acquisition would for a moment be entertained. Besides, said Tom Ryder, them fellows at Red Dog would swap it and ring in somebody else on us. A disbelief in the honesty of other camps prevailed at Roaring Camp, as in other places. The introduction of a female nurse in the camp also met with objection. It was argued that no decent woman could be prevailed to accept Roaring Camp as her home, and the speaker urged that they didn't want any more of the other kind. This unkind allusion to the defunct mother, harsh as it may seem, was the first spasm of propriety, the first symptom of the camp's regeneration. Stumpy advanced nothing, Perhaps he felt a certain delicacy in interfering with the selection of a possible successor in office. But when questioned, he averred stoutly that he and Ginny, the mammal before alluded to, could manage to rear the child. There was something original, independent and heroic, about the plan that pleased the camp. Stumpy was retained. Certain articles were sent for to Sacramento. Mind, said the treasurer, as he pressed a bag of gold dust into the express man's hand. The best that can be got, lace, you know, and filigree works and frills. Darn the cost. Strange to say, the child thrived. Perhaps the invigorating climate of the mountain camp was compensation for material deficiencies. Nature took the foundling to her broader breast. In that rare atmosphere of the Sierra foothills, that air pungent with balsamic odour, that ethereal, cordial, at once bracing and exhilarating. He may have found food and nourishment, or a subtle chemistry that transmuted goat's milk to lime and phosphorus. Stumpy inclined to the belief that it was the latter and good nursing. Me and that goat, he would say, has been the father and mother to him. Don't you, he would add, apostrophizing the helpless bundle before him, 
never go back on us. By the time he was a month old, the necessity of giving him a name became apparent. He had generally been known as the kid, Stumpy's boy, the coyote, an allusion to his vocal powers, and even by Kentuck's endearing diminutive of the dead little cuss. But these were felt to be vague and unsatisfactory, and were at last dismissed under another influence. Gamblers and adventurers are generally superstitious, and Oakhurst one day declared that the baby had brought luck to Roaring Camp. It was certain that of late they had been successful. Luck was the name agreed upon, with the prefix of Tommy for greater convenience. No allusion was made to the mother, and the father was unknown. It's better, said the philosophical Oakhurst, to take a fresh deal all round. Call him luck and start him fair. A day was accordingly set apart for the christening. What was meant by this ceremony, the reader may imagine, who has already gathered some idea of the reckless irreverence of Roaring Camp. The master of ceremonies was one Boston, a noted wag, and the occasion seemed to promise the greatest facetiousness. This ingenious satirist had spent two days in preparing a burlesque of the church service, with pointed local allusions. The choir was properly trained, and Sandy Tipton was to stand godfather. But after the procession had marched to the grove with music and banners, and the child had been deposited before a mock altar, Stumpy stepped before the expectant crowd. It ain't my style to spoil fun, boys, said the little man stoutly eyeing the faces around him. But it strikes me that this thing ain't exactly on the square. It's playing pretty low down on this year baby to ring in fun on him that he ain't going to understand. And if there's going to be any godfathers around, I'd like to see who's got any better rights than me. A silence followed Stumpy's speech. To the credit of all humorous, be it said, that the first man to acknowledge its justice was the satirist thus stopped of his fun. But, said Stumpy, quickly following up his advantage, we're here for a christening, and we'll have it. I proclaim you Thomas Luck according to the laws of the United States and the state of California. So help me God. It was the first time that the name of the deity 
had been otherwise uttered than profanely in the camp. The form of christening was perhaps even more ludicrous than the satirist had conceived, but strangely enough, nobody saw it and nobody laughed. Tommy was christened as seriously as he would have been under a Christian roof, and cried and was comforted in an orthodox fashion. And so the work of regeneration began in Roaring Camp. Almost imperceptibly, a change came over the settlement. The cabin assigned to Tommy Luck or The Luck, as he was more frequently called, first showed signs of improvement. It was kept scrupulously clean and whitewashed. Then it was boarded, clothed and papered. The rosewood cradle, packed 80 miles by mule, had in Stumpy's way of putting it, sorta killed the rest of the furniture. So the rehabilitation of the cabin became a necessity. The men who were in the habit of lounging in at Stumpy's to see how the luck got on seemed to appreciate the change, and in self-defence the rival establishment of Tuttle's Grocery bestirred itself and imported a carpet and mirrors. The reflections of the latter on the appearance of Roaring Camp tended to produce stricter habits of personal cleanliness. Again, Stumpy imposed a kind of quarantine upon those who aspired to the honour and privilege of holding the luck. It was a cruel mortification to Kentuck who, in the carelessness of a large nature and the habits of frontier life, had begun to regard all garments as a second cuticle, which, like a snake's, only sloughed off through decay, and to be debarred from this privilege from certain prudential reasons. Yet such was the subtle influence of innovation that he thereafter appeared, regularly every afternoon in a clean shirt and face still shining from his ablutions. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed The Luck of Roaring Camp. I also hope you're feeling a little drowsy. I look forward to bringing you a new episode very soon. Until then, good night.